You know, one of the more profound things that I really had a chance to reflect on this year was what Jamie pastured on a few weeks ago, was that we live in a microcosm of history, like we're one piece of a large puzzle, and God has the whole picture before him, but we just have that one piece. And it caused me to reflect on my life and where I started from and where I am today and realizing that God had a plan right from the very beginning. He has a plan for each and every one of us. It's so profound that even a coronavirus can't slow down his plan for us. And I just, I was so moved by that and it still caused me to reflect, especially as I had family surrounding me and I undisclosed area. <laughs> but when I had family around me and I didn't realize 25, 30 years ago that I would have a family like this. Mm-hmm. So when we think about our past and how God's put it together. Romans chapter 1 verses 1 through 17 Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle separated unto the gospel of God which he had promised afore by his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are also ye called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, call to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests. If by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be confronted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I proposed to come to you, but was led hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, and is written, the just shall live by faith. And if we can turn to chapter 16, starting verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience is cometh abroad 
unto all men, and I am glad therefore on your behalf. But yet I would have you wise unto which is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timotheus, my workfellow, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sopater, my kinsmen, salute you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the whole church saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. And Cordus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him that is the power to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. To God only wise be glory, through Jesus Christ forever. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the words that you have blessed us with, for the guidance that you give for our lives, for this time of the season that we can reflect on why Jesus came here. For if it was just for one person, myself alone, Christ would have still gone to the cross, obedient to the Father. We thank you so much, Lord, for, for family for church, family, for those that come around when we need us the most, because you provide for us what we need, not always what we want. For if we were to look back at this, say, at this past year, there are many things that we didn't want, but there are many things that you provided for our needs. So, Lord, as we listen to your word this morning, as we listen to the pastor speak, I just pray that you would Claim this ground, this holy ground, that Satan would have no, no position here whatsoever. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that gives us the direction and the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And may that be so this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Lee. But he's got a voice for radio, doesn't he? He's on the radio. After those scriptures, I almost feel like I just need to sit down and think about them. Um, one of the things that was a part of the early church was hearing the reading of the Word of God, hearing letters in Scripture read. Paul told Timothy, give attendance to the reading. And he meant the public reading of Scripture. There's something the public reading of Scripture does to the soul when we just listen and we hear in fact, the book of Revelation is promised a blessing to those who listen to it being read aloud. That verse in chapter 1, verse 3, is speaking of the book, that letter, being read aloud to the hearers, and a special blessing that comes from those that hear and obey it. But we are going to pick up here in the book of Romans, and I'm going to try to do an impossible thing. Recap five chapters here. Um of this uh, tremendous book. Covered three chapters just about, and then um, while we were on vacation, um, Birch finished chapter three in the good news of Jesus. Charlie preached chapter four in the necessity of faith. And then chapter five, Brother Gary preached about the second Adam. 
And Paul begins in Romans chapter 1 writing to these believers in these house churches in Rome with explaining who he is and what is the gospel. What is the gospel? And I trust as we work through these chapters that, um, as was mentioned uh, in a conversation I made this morning, that our hearts will be overwhelmed with abounding grace. Abounding grace. Um, Paul begins in verse 1 introducing himself, and then he talks about the gospel of God in verse 2 that God promised in the Holy Scriptures. You see the Old Testament tied to the New Testament there through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is anchored in the Old Testament. The New Testament is the explanation of it. And in chapter 3, then, he starts to explain the gospel, and he begins in verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which is made of the seed of David according to the flesh. I want you to see a couple things about the gospel that need to be crystallized in our minds or reminded of in case we've forgotten. That the gospel concerning his son, really, Paul in this chapter here, in these verses here, is talking about two events. He came and he is enthroned. Jesus came and he is enthroned. How did he come? Well, he came by means of the seed of David. We know the virgin birth and Mary and Joseph descendants of David, the rightful heir. But it shows us that Jesus Christ had already existed. He was pre-existing. He was pre-existing. He came by means of the seed of David, concerning the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, according to the flesh. God always existed as the Son of God. Uh, the Son of God uh, is the eternal Son of God. He never had a beginning. But when he came as that virgin birth, he added to his divine nature a human nature. Manhood, humanity. And so as pertains to the flesh, he was fully human too. This is what we call the incarnation, we celebrate at Christmas. But notice he says, of the seed of David. So he's the rightful king. He's the rightful king. So he came, and then secondly, notice what Paul says about the gospel. Verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He's appointed the Son of God in power. He is reigning through the Spirit. And how did this happen? By a resurrection from literally from among the dead ones. We know from passages like Philippians 2 that because of this and his ascension, he is super exalted, hyper exalted is the word used. As the eternal Son in forever human form. He is enthroned. And Philippians 2, 6 through 11 tells us that, that, we, that he is owed because he is reigning a knee-bowing, tongue-confessing allegiance by all. And so these two parts of the gospel, the incarnation, which of course includes his life and his death and burial, and then his enthronement, his resurrection and ascension and enthronement on high, tells us that this is a royal proclamation of good news. This is the good news of a reigning king who saves. Well, what's Paul's purpose for writing this? Well, he says in verse 5, By whom we have received grace and apostleship. We're apostles, Paul says, and we're, I'm writing this letter to you as one who is an, an envoy, one who has been given a, a, a dispatch, a representative of the king here to pass this message on. 
We've been given this message for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. It sounds just like what Jesus said at the end of Matthew as the ascended king, right? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. That's what Paul's doing here. The obedience of faith among all the nations. So here's his purpose. The obedience of faith. What's that going to look like? Well, among the Romans, uh, Paul has, uh, will, will later on in the book, uh, explain what the obedience of faith, transformed lives, looks like in chapters 12 through 16. That's where he's trying to go with these folks. The obedience of faith. So what's Paul's purpose? Well, look here. This obedience of faith here. He, he says... Um, among whom are you also the call of Jesus Christ. So they're part of these, these who have uh, received the obedience of faith among the nations for his name. These, these believers in Rome, verse 7, to all that are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace and peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 8, I'm hearing things about you, I'm hearing things about your witness here in verse 9. God is my witness, who I serve in my spirit, the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. I'm interceding for you. I want to see you. I want to see you in verse 11, because I want to impart, I want to give to you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. So your faith is strengthened. I want to see you strengthened. So verse 12, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me, so that you, you strengthen me when I see what God's doing at work in your life, and then I have the ability to share what God's shown me with you. He wants to go there, verse 13. It's been difficult for him. He hasn't been uh, allowed to yet. And verse 13, that I might have fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I'm a debtor in verse 14. Those are the Greeks and the barbarians. Not in the sense that he's trying to pay God back, but he's been given a deposit here that he's supposed to see stewarded. And then in verse 15, how is he going to build them up? How is he going to establish them? Verse 15. So as much in me as I am ready to preach, to proclaim the good news, the gospel to you that are at Rome also. That's why Paul wants to go there. Now, who are these people? Who are these people? Well, if you read the rest of chapter 16 sometime on your own, you'd see that Paul talks about a cluster of house churches. And scholars think there are probably about five households, this network of churches here, five households. There are probably uh, a maximum of 40 people in each church. Uh, 40, because they're met in houses, and a wealthy house could hold about that many there. And so if there were, uh, there were any wealthy church members, that they would have a, a room that would hold that many. There's probably a cluster of about 200 people then in this massive city of Rome. To give you a, 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 an idea of where Paul is, <clears throat> he's going to send this letter in chapter 16 through a woman called Phoebe. And probably Phoebe would have been the one who would read this letter to the church. And that's why Paul gives an introduction in chapter 16 about Phoebe and how you should pay attention to her and how she is a, a woman who is of noble character. And so she's gonna, she's from Centria, Centria, which is near Corinth, and she's gonna make her way up to Rome. She's probably a wealthy woman, she's called a benefactor, and she's going to present this letter. Now, meeting with Paul, there's a good chance and opportunity in the customs that day that they would have gone over this letter together. That um, uh, Paul would have 
have coached her in how to read this letter. See, the oral giving of a letter wasn't just a dry reading. It was a dramatic act. She would have looked at the strong when she read that part of the, of the letter in chapter 14 to the strong. She would look at the weak when she was reading those letters. She would look at Jew and Gentile in the midst there of believers brought together. As Paul says, there's no partiality for God. There was, there was a dramatic reading of this letter. She would have been into it. And here she is in the Roman Empire. A vast empire at this time. Um, under the control and rule of one man at this time, it was Nero. It was not very kind to Christians. In fact, uh, predecessors had kicked the Jews out of Rome earlier. You see this in the book of Acts. And so that church that had begun in Rome, probably through Pentecost, and those believers at Pentecost emigrating back to Rome, had been kicked out. And, and But there was a work that was probably still going on, and Gentiles had filled that church, and now those Jews have been able, allowed to return after about three years, and they found that the culture had shifted in the church. And Paul's going to write this letter to say, here's what really matters, not your own personal culture, not the things that you grew up in, but here's what matters, the gospel of God. And the gospel of God is able to reconcile God and man. And if it's able to reconcile God and man, it's able to reconcile those who are joined to God, believers. And that's what he's going to uh, try to get them to understand because there is a mixture of strong in faith and weak in faith in the book he talks about. Probably Jews, weak in faith, very tied to some of the customs that they grew up with. And Gentiles who weren't raised in that. Paul says, that's not the thing that matters. What matters is that you build each other up. Because here's what I want to do. In Rome, I want to make you like the Antioch of the West. Antioch of the East, the church that Paul was sent out of, was the church that sent Paul on his first missionary journey. And Paul saw a, a, lot, of, a, a lot of growth uh, there among these churches that he planted in the East. And now he wants to go west to Spain. To lay a foundation that hadn't been built he wants the partnership of this Roman church. You read about this in chapter 15. And probably taking some of them along to contribute and, and be a part of this. But they need to be strengthened, established, and keeping the main thing the main thing. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things, somebody has said. And so it is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how is Paul going to do this here with these believers? Well, verse 15, he's going to proclaim the gospel. And that's what he does in chapter 1. Proclaim the gospel. I thought the gospel was just the entry point to the Christian life. It's a door. Swing. You get in. And Paul says, no. It's the whole house. It's the whole house. Yes, it lets you into the door. But in chapter 6, he says, it changes the way you live every day through Jesus' death and resurrection. The gospel. And so Paul will say in chapter 1, verse 16, about this gospel, he's going to preach among these these people at Rome, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Look at the city of Rome. This was a 3D model someone has built there. Uh, you can see um, uh, some of the uh, more uh, familiar places in Rome. And then you see on the left of that screen there, that blue, and that's the river Tiber. And on the left side, the western side of the Tiber, is where a lot of the immigrants would have lived. The poorer sections. 
And that's probably where many of these people in the Church of Rome lived. And they would travel maybe to different places of the city to gather and worship in these house churches here. Here's what one of the... Uh, here, here you see a little bit better there, that, that area right around there, probably a, a, a good cluster of believers in that particular part. Uh, there were some up in here, according to uh, uh, church records later on in church history, and down here below as well, as the church began to expand. But they would have met in a home like this. This, is, this would have been a wealthy Roman home here. This, you can see some of the, the artwork on the walls here, a couple of the beds. Uh, this would have been a room that would have held some believers here, wealthy room. And, if that, and, and this would have held, you know, who knows, 30, 40 people packed in there. Um, but they would probably have met at night, a little harder to see uh, there. But that's, that's what they would have, uh, would have gathered in. And Paul is going to deliver this message to them through Phoebus. You probably would have read this letter very probably five times. <laughs> To five different house churches, all networked there, unless they had found a place that was large enough, large enough to meet all at once. Paul says this is going to happen through the saving power of the gospel. The saving power of the gospel, verse 16. The true historical events of Jesus, the Son of God, that Paul had rehearsed in chapter 2 through 4. That God had come as man and crucified for our sins, and he's raised and reigning by the Spirit. This is the saving power of God. In fact, in chapter 15, near the end, in verse 18 and 19, Paul says this. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not worked by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul had seen already for himself that saving power of the gospel. So here we've seen already in the beginning of this book what the gospel is, what Paul's purpose is for writing this letter, this context here. But the question arises then in chapter 1, verse 16. Who is this saving power of the king for? And Paul says... And verse 16, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the power of God to everyone that believes. There's no culture that is uh, uh, not without the witness of the word of God. That is not to be given the witness of the word of God. There's not any creature, any creation on this earth that is to be, that the gospel of God is to be withheld from. It is applied then to those who believe, to those who turn and trust. The idea of believing in faith is this idea of a transfer, a change in thinking. A change of transfer. Uh, if I put two chairs up here and said, okay, I want you to sit in this chair, and now I want you to sit in this chair, you're going to have to get up and leave that chair to go into this chair. There's a transfer of faith, a transfer of dependence. And that's it's a transfer of loyalties here. Since we're talking about allegiance to the king. And so both to the Jew and Gentile, there is a change of loyalties in their lives. And that is how the gospel becomes the power of God at work in their hearts. Well, how is it the saving power of the king? Paul says this in verse 17. For therein, in the saving power of Christ in the gospel, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Literally, 
by faith, for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The word faith in Latin is translated fidelity. How many of you know the Marine Corps' motto? What is it? Semper Fi. Semper Fi. Semper Fidelis, right? Always what? Faithful. Always faithful. It's it's the idea of of a loyal trust. By faith, for faith. And notice what he does in verse 17. He then anchors that in the scriptures by quoting uh, in verse 17. As it is revealed, the just shall live by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk, one of those puzzling books. Short book. Where Habakkuk is crying out to God in the beginning of that book. Against the wickedness and injustice among his fellow Judeans. And God gives him an answer in verse 6 and says, Yep, I'm going to take care of them. And I think back, I was thinking as my mom, he's going to change their hearts. He's going to fix it. And what God meant by taking care of it is, it's going to get worse. He's going to send the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are going to come against the fellow Judeans there of Habakkuk. And God's going to judge Judah. And Habakkuk starts to think and says, But God, okay, yeah, my fellow Judeans are bad, but the Babylonians are more bad. (laughs) They're even more wicked. And you're going to judge Judah with more wicked people? And then God says, well, I'm going to judge the Babylonians too. God promises to judge the Babylonians too. And then he says this in Habakkuk 2.4, The just shall live by faith. And the word in Hebrew is amuna, and it's the idea here of faithfulness. The just shall live by a steadfastness. A steadfastness to God and His covenant during this national crisis. A steadiness. A faith. And so here's what I believe Paul's saying here in verse 17, and quoting that, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed, literally, by faith, for faith, is that we have one who is faithful. Christ's faithfulness. And Christ's faithfulness here empowers us to be people who are faithful trusters of God. The just shall live by faith. In fact, he's going to expand on that whole idea of Jesus, the faithful one, in chapter 5. So by Christ's faithfulness, for faithful trusting uh, Christ's work is effective. There's an, there's an effective power there in verse 17. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Notice what he says. There's something else that reveals the gospel. Therein in the gospel, the righteousness of God revealed. And then, verse 18. The good news is revealed... Because there is a backdrop, a default of bad news in verse 18. The bad news helps reveal the good news. The bad news is in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So here's the point here. The good news... To all who believe gives us a vindication from judgment. 
See, the bow of God's wrath, the bow of God's anger against our sin is aimed at us because of our default nature. The good news vindicates that through the cross of Jesus Christ. There's vindication from judgment and the wrath of God for those who believe. There's a saving power in effect in all those who will turn and trust. Because they have been joined to the King who has sacrificed Himself by the Spirit. They have been made righteous, and so they live through Him too. Chapter 6. They have been saved from judgment unto a resurrection of new life, is what Paul will begin to explain. And so from chapter 118, he says, here's what the wrath of God looks like. God gives you over. He says, your will be done. Fine. Three times, God gave them over. God gave them over. And so let's take a walk through the rest of the book here. As people exchange the truth for a lie and worship the creation more than the creator, here's what happens. In chapter 2, for those who would have been hearing this and saying, wow, those people are really messed up, they're really bad, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, you're without excuse. Because when you're judging someone else, whatever grounds you're going to judge one another, you're condemning yourself because you who judge are practicing the very same things. And God has been very kind to you, and that should lead you to a, a change of heart, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepenting heart, you're stirring up God's anger for yourself. When God's righteous judgment is revealed in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, He will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey them unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that works good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. There's no partiality with God. So God says here, here's the problem. Whether you're self-righteous or whether you're obviously and blatantly immoral, you're under God's condemnation. And he explains this more in chapter 3. To the Jews, he says, aren't we better off? We're Jews. And Paul says, no, we're not. Because remember, Jews and Greeks are all alike under sin. In chapter 3, verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's not one who seeks God. They've all turned away. They're empty, vain, worthless. There's no one who shows kindness even. Not even one. Not for the glory of God. So Paul says in chapter 3, verse 19, this the law of God says to those under the law, every mouth is going to be stopped, silenced, and the whole world will be held accountable to God. And then he says, and here's the good news, in chapter 3, verse 21. Two words. But now. Think about hearing those words. Here's the bad news. Here's a change. But, and not one day, but now. The righteousness of God without the law is manifest revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, to all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, no distinction. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God has set forth to be a propitiation, a satisfaction of God's wrath, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness, for the remission, the forgiveness, passing over of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. Here's what happens. God's disclosed this. Yes, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. And guess what? The offer of grace, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. You're justified freely by His grace. God has publicly displayed Christ in His death. Christ is the mercy seat we cling to. Accessible through what? Faith. Accessible through faith. So that God could demonstrate His righteousness right now in the present time so that He'd be the just one and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. Paul says, here's why the gospel's different, because you can't boast about it. You can't say, well, I really worked hard to get there. Because it's by grace. Through faith. Well, through faith, well, what does that mean? And so he's going to spend chapter 4 talking about faith and belief. And he starts off in chapter 4, verse 1. Abraham, you know Abraham, Jewish people, our ancestor according to the flesh. You know what he discovered regarding this? That even before he experienced circumcision, the sign of God's covenant, he had to believe God, and that is how God accounted it to him for righteousness. So it's not circumcision, it's not being born into family, it's not a physical act that saves you. There is a heart belief. And it's not just Abraham. How about our father David? In verse 6. David himself, he speaks about the blessedness of man who sees, finds the forgiveness of God and God credits righteousness apart from works. We know it's apart from works because David is writing a penitential psalm. He's writing confessing his sin. And God credits to him his righteousness. That's grace. <laughs> Think about that. Grasp that here. David didn't earn God's favor, God's righteousness by works. The very problem was David sinned and David confessed that sin and God credits righteousness. It's an act of faith. So it's not circumcision of the outward that makes you a covenant child of God. It's a circumcision of the heart, which he already has said at the end of chapter 2. And this promise that God made to Abraham wasn't fulfilled through the law, but a righteousness that comes through this faith, this, this trust in the Lord. And why? By faith in verse 16. So that it's by grace. That this promise that God made to Abraham to have a, 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 a seed that would bless all the nations of the earth would be fulfilled. Not just those who are Israelites under the law, but to all the world, the Gentiles. In chapter 4, verse 17, that's why God made Abraham the father of many Nations. And Abraham exhibited this in verse 21, being fully convinced that God would do what he had promised. And he gives one of these encapsulated summaries of the gospel again in chapter 4, verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also. To whom it shall be imputed. Here's the condition. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who was delivered. Put to death. For our offenses. 
and was raised again for our justification. A big, big word meaning for our declared righteousness. So what's the expectation here? This justification. Well, Paul says this in chapter 5, 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have attained access by faith into this grace. This grace, this gospel is what we stand in. Our, our feet are anchored in it. And we rejoice in the things that happen to us. The suffering, the temptations, etc. Here, uh, they, they produce a, a, a faithfulness and endurance in us. As we live by faith. And this, and this endurance, this character produces a, a hope. Some of you walked through this, haven't you, this year? Trials in you have formed a greater hope in you for the new creation. That Revelation 21 and 22 promise. You've seen this. Verse 5, this hope, this hope doesn't let us down. (laughs) This hope doesn't disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's been shed abroad, given to us. Oh yeah, let me go back to the gospel again, Paul says. Why is this true? So now he's going to talk about two. Two Adams. The first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam in chapter um, uh, 5.12. The first Adam who plunged us into sin and death. Seemingly irreversible, right? Unless the Lord returns, every one of us will suffer a physical death. Everybody who has lived before us has died. (laughs) Even Jesus Christ suffered the penalty of death for the innocent. But here's the good news. In this state of helplessness because of our rebellion, Christ dies for the ungodly, verse 6. And God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, before we came to faith in Christ, Christ died for us. And he says in verse 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved, rescued from wrath through him. Because we've been reconciled to God by the death of his son, we're saved by his life. Receive the atonement in verse 11. Because remember, here's what Adam did. He plunged us into sin. And death reigned. In verse 15. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression. Because if many die through the transgression of one man, how much more by the grace of God and the gift of his grace of the one man did Jesus then multiply the life to many? In other words, what Adam did was more than just outdone by the second Adam. What Adam did in the horrific 
curse that has been placed upon us because of Adam's sin. It pales. It is weak. As strong as death is, it is weak in comparison to the multiple, manifold power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Those cemeteries you see everywhere in Maine, <laughs> in the strangest places sometimes. Compared to the power of resurrection life that comes through Jesus. And Paul says this in verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reign by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Saying, given this, through Adam, verse First part of verse 17. Notice what he says. Much more. This is abounding grace. This is the saving power of Christ in the gospel. Much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign. There's that king kingdom language again. Shall reign in life by one. Jesus, Messiah King, Jesus Christ. He reminds him again. He says it again. As by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men, the condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men, the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. The law entered. It showed sin. The offense and treason against God was made very plain, held up against God's law and what he required. But where sin abounded, Paul said, grace did much more abound in Christ. That as sin has reigned to death, sin showed its triumph, it showed its dominion as life after life dropped off into eternity. Even so, my grace Reign through righteousness to eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul wants us to stop there and worship abounding grace. Friends, this is the life God's given you if you have believed. This good news, the true story that Jesus is the saving king who always existed as God the Son who was sent by by the Father, who took on perfect humanity to fulfill God's promise, who died for our sins in agreement with the prophets and the Scriptures, who was buried, who was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, who then appears to many witnesses, who is now ascended and enthroned at the right hand of God as the reigning Messiah. He has sent the Spirit who has proceeded from Him to those who believe to obey everything He commanded. And He will come again to reign and judge the earth. This is abounding grace that you are standing in today. And this King, Paul says in Acts 17, commands all nations and all men everywhere to repent. 
commands all nations, peoples, to lay down their loyalties in this life, in this world. And receive him as their king, their saving king. To lay down their rebellion and come to him as a saving king. To declare their allegiance to him. Be baptized to display this allegiance to Jesus and his people. An abounding grace that came out of sin. This gospel that was revealed reveals the righteousness of God and also is revealed because of God's wrath. God's anger upon sin. And Paul wants to make sure they're understanding the astounding nature of grace. He wants them to just sit in this and bathe in it for a while. And because he has declared the abounding grace of God, he says it's possible to take this the wrong way. This is so astounding, it's possible to take this the wrong way. It's possible to just look at Jesus as a ticket to heaven and live your life the way you want. And he says, that's wrong. God forbid. Because he says in 6-1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. It's an expression in the Greek, meganeto. And that's one way to express it. We really don't have a word-for-word expression of it. God forbid. May it never be. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin? What's the whole purpose of this gospel? To show that we've been crucified with Christ and raised in his resurrection. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Don't you know that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we were baptized into his death. If we're baptized in his death, therefore we're buried with him by baptism in the death. And if we're baptized in his death, what else happened to Jesus? He rose from the dead. That's the hope. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. To trample on the grace of God is to turn to death again. To walk in newness of life is to really understand the gospel. What abounding grace. What abounding grace. This is the truth. And know what he's going to talk about next? Your bodies. Your bodies. He's not going to talk about the gospel as some disembodied spiritual concept that has nothing to do with life. He's going to talk about your bodies and now how your bodies, your physical bodies are under the domain, the dominion of grace to be surrendered instruments of the king that you have declared your loyalty through the saving power of the gospel. He's not going to pretend it's easy, chapter 7. But he 
is going to tell us we have full access into the full resources of resurrection life, the life of Christ. Friends in a crowd this size, I wonder if what Paul's talking about is true of you. If you heard these things, you know these things, but you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never received the King. He is not living in you. Friends, one of the scary things of Romans 1 is people who had God's truth and suppressed it kept pushing it away. And hearts got harder and harder as God said, okay, I'll give you over. I'll give you over to what you want. The wrath of God. Sad. To hear the words of life, hear the words of truth, and not respond. Friends, Jesus Christ has granted you amnesty here. (laughs) From the default nature of your sin and what it deserved, Jesus Christ has come to me. I'm the one who has life. You're marching to the edge of the cliff, and that real estate is running out. Come to Jesus. Turn and trust in the saving power of the good news of Christ. For some of you who have heard this message and you have said, well, I'm fully convinced of that. But you still have not professed that Jesus is your saving king through baptism. And you're in disobedience because of that. Jesus says in Romans 6 here through Paul that you have been baptized into his death and his resurrection. And God's telling you this morning, the Holy Spirit's telling you, you need to make a public profession of this. You need to let the world know and this faith family here know that you're following Jesus and the saving power of the King is at work in you. Some of you have received the Lord Jesus as your King and Savior. You've been baptized. And your loyalties to this King have been wavering. There's a lot of work and change that goes on in the Christian life. Let's pray. Conform us to the Son. Romans 8, 29. And there's things in your life that the Holy Spirit speaking to you and saying, Hey, you're, you're, you're trampling on grace. How you respond to that individual, the things that the Holy Spirit has convicted you of and you're not dealing with and you're pushing away or making excuses, you're sinning because you think grace abounds. God forbid. God forbid. And there's things that need to be laid off and replaced with putting on Christ. Reigning in grace through your mortal body, your flesh. You need to do business with the Lord. Friends, if any of those describe you, and I can't see how there would be anyone left out, you need to do business in your seat right now with the God of heaven. Look what he provided. Look what he delivered from. Look how patient he has been. 
Look how kind he has been. Look at his gift of abounding grace. Lord Jesus, how unspeakable is the gift of Christ who came into poverty of a spiritual riches, who takes ruined sinners and reclaims them. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Who disarmed the powers of the evil one and severed his head and will one day cast him and all those joined with him in the lake of fire for eternity. What a sobering, fearful thought in one sense. And what a shout of victory in another. You tell us at the end of this book that the Son of God has crushed the serpent under our own feet. Lord, we know that can only be true because you've joined us with you. May this gospel that we that has been declared in chapters 1 through 5 now begin to shape and mold us in chapters 6 through 8. With this real identity at our core, this total gut job and replacement here of our inner dynamics. Lord, as we look at your mercy and the future for your people Israel, and your grace in extending this to the Gentiles and grafting us into the olive tree in 9 through 11. Continue to be humbled. And then, Lord, chapter 12 through 16, help us to be transformed, surrendered, renewed in our minds, not conformed to the values of the world, but transformed people. In our relationships to one another, to our enemies, to the government, And differing opinions about things that aren't clear. And in the mission of God to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we close this morning and before we sing and then have some announcements, I wonder um, this morning if there are any things that, uh, that, that weren't made clear or um, some questions you may have or some observations from uh, what we've covered in Romans 1 through 5 so far. All right, let's sing to the kingdom. That's my